used to be three miles below Vicksburg. A recent cutoff has radically changed the position, and Delta is now two miles above Vicksburg. Both of these river towns have been retired to the country by that cutoff. A cutoff plays havoc with boundary lines and jurisdictions. For instance, a man is living in the state of Mississippi today, a cutoff occurs tonight, and tomorrow the man finds himself and his land over on the other side of the river within the boundaries and subject to the laws of the state of Louisiana. Such a thing happening in the Upper River in the old times could have transferred a slave from Missouri to Illinois and made a free man of him. The Mississippi does not alter its locality by cutoffs alone. It is always changing its habitat bodily. It is always moving sidewise. At hard times, Louisiana, the river is two miles west of the region it used to occupy. As a result, the original site of that settlement is not now in Louisiana at all, but on the other side of the river in the state of Mississippi. Nearly the whole of that 1,300 miles of old Mississippi River which LaSalle floated down in his canoes 200 years ago is good, solid, dry ground now. The river lies to the right of it in places and to the left of it in other places. Although the Mississippi's mud builds land but slowly, Down at the mouth, where the gulf's billows interfere with its work, it builds fast enough in better protected regions higher up. For instance, Prophet's Island contained 1,500 acres of land 30 years ago. Since then, the river has added 700 acres to it. But enough of these examples of the mighty stream's eccentricities for the present. I will give a few more of them further along in the book. Let us drop the Mississippi's physical history and say a word about its historical history, so to speak. We can glance briefly at its slumberous first epoch in a couple of short chapters, at its second and wider awake epoch in a couple more, at its flushest and widest awake epoch in a good many succeeding chapters, and then talk about its comparatively tranquil present epoch in what shall be left of the book. The world and the books are so accustomed to use and overuse the word new in connection with our country that we early get and permanently retain the impression that there is nothing old about it. We do, of course, know that there are several comparatively old dates in American history, but the mere figures convey to our minds no just idea, no distinct realization of the stretch of time which they represent. To say that DeSoto, the first white man who ever saw the Mississippi River, saw it in 1542, is a remark which states a fact without interpreting it. It is something like giving the dimensions of a sunset by astronomical measurements and cataloging the colors by their scientific names. As a result, you get the bald fact of the sunset, but you don't see the sunset. It would have been better to paint a picture of it. The date, 1542, standing by itself, means little or nothing to us, but when one groups a few neighboring historical dates and facts around it, he adds perspective and color, and then realizes that this is one of the American dates which is quite respectable for age. For instance, when the Mississippi was first seen by a white man, less than a quarter of a century had elapsed since Francis I's defeat at Pavia, the death of Raphael, the death of Bayard, sans peur et sans reproche, the driving out of the night's hospitallers from Rhodes by the Turks, and the placarding of the Ninety-Five Propositions, the act which began the Reformation. When De Soto took his glimpse of the river, Ignatius Loyola was an obscure name. The Order of the Jesuits was not yet a year old. 
Michelangelo's paint was not yet dry on the last judgment in the Sistine Chapel. Mary, Queen of Scots, was not yet born, but would be before the year closed. Catherine de' Medici was a child. Elizabeth of England was not yet in her teens. Calvin, Benvenuto Cellini, and the Emperor Charles V were at the top of their fame, and each was manufacturing history after his own peculiar fashion. Margaret of Navarre was writing the Heptameron and some religious books. The first survives, the others are forgotten, wit and indelicacy being sometimes better literature preservers than holiness. Lax court morals and the absurd chivalry business were in full feather, and the joust and the tournament were the frequent pastime of titled fine gentlemen who could fight better than they could spell, while religion was the passion of their ladies, and classifying their offspring into children of full rank and children by brevet their pastime. In fact, all around, religion was in a peculiar...